it's fantastic, really, in every way. And I think it is a great song. You're listening to The Worship Review, a podcast which evaluates contemporary Christian music for the good of the church to the glory of God. This podcast is for the whole church to encourage thoughtful engagement with the words, emotions, and ideas in our music. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. Hello, welcome back to another episode of The Worship Review. This is the podcast that critically but charitably examines the texts of songs that we all sing in our churches. And today we have an oldie but a goldie. It is well with my soul. And I am, as always, Colin, a history professor and former worship leader of about 15 years, and I'm joined by my co-host, Tyler. Hi, I'm Tyler. I'm also a former worship leader, a proud Christian, and happy discusser of words. I noticed that you mixed two idioms there. You had a golden oldie mixed with an oldie but a goodie, and I think you called it an oldie but a goodie or something. Oldie but a goldie. Oldie but a goldie. (laughs) I, I, uh, I ripped that off. So I was at a concert. And Billy Cor- Billy Corgan of the Smashing Pumpkins, this was like 20 years ago, called, uh, introduced one of his songs as an oldie but a goldie. And I just remember at the time, I just that stuck with me. And so hence, I've always said that phrase. An oldie but a goldie. At a, at a Country Bumpkins concert? What was that? Yep. At a, at a Breaking Gourds concert. That's right. Ah, uh, yes. A gourd bursting concert. That's right. Yep. Well, Tyler, so um, it is well with my soul. This is part of our excellent song series, and you brought it, so we already have a sense that you think it is excellent. Tyler, there is no backstory to this song, right? This is a song which <laughs> it is completely unknown as to why the author wrote it. I've never heard a pastor tell this story, right? This is very obscure, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So there's a lot of mythology that's popped up around this song. And one of the reasons, before we get into some of that, one of the reasons I wanted to do this song is because we discussed a song uh, earlier in the podcast, actually long time ago episode 36 on this podcast we we talked about it is well by bethel music and despite the song being considered uh, an excellent song colin that song that we did by bethel that we reviewed got ones from each of us <laughs> our worst rating ouch yeah so you gave it one out of five ice queens and i gave it one out of five mumfords and i'm wondering for listeners who are maybe new to the show, how is it possible that a song could appear twice, once getting our lowest rating and now on a series called Excellent Songs? Well, the the problem with that Bethel version, if I remember so, was that they absolutely butchered the song. So they they included none of what was great about It Is Well, and then they ripped the chorus out of its context and just uh, used the chorus, if I remember correctly. Like there was no none of the meat which is in the verses and it's the verses that make sense of the chorus none of the meat from the verses survived in the bethel version if i remember correctly and they just stuck in there a bunch of nonsense just kind of subjective uh mystical you know nonsense really 
Yeah. So just to give some examples uh, for listeners who didn't hear that episode, again, I recommend you go listen to episode 36. We're already, by the way, straining the charitable part that I said, because it was probably a little bit hard there, but yeah, go ahead. It opens this, the Bethel version opens with grander earth has quaked before. So uh, we had some fun trying to piece together kind of what, what exactly that uh, that meant in context. And so unlike that one, this one uh, opens with when peace like a river attendeth my way. So a very different kind of song, so to speak. This is much closer to a hymn. So to get into some of the backstory around this song, it was written by uh, a Presbyterian minister at the time who was a powerful and wealthy attorney and landowner in the Chicago area. In uh, 1871, his business uh, prospects reversed in part because of the great Chicago fire destroying a lot of his uh, property, but also uh, there was just widespread economic downturn at the time. So he loses you know, much of his wealth and uh, prestige, I guess you could say, although he still had his law firm. And in 1873, he sends his uh, wife and four young daughters between the ages of two and 11, roughly in, interspersed in between there. I think it was like two, uh, seven, nine, and 11 on a originally a steamship, but a boat uh, traveling to England for a retreat and revival. However, uh, that uh, boat, which is called the Ville du Havre in French, that's just the name of the boat. It just means the town of the harbor, I guess a harbor town. In any event, that boat capsized after crashing into another boat on the ocean. And miraculously, the mother was saved, his wife, Anna, uh, but his four daughters perished at sea. And Horatio already planning to join his uh, wife and daughters, received a telegraph that said, saved alone from his wife, kind of famous telegraph. Uh, and he hopped aboard a boat to, to join his grieving wife in England. Uh, as he was traveling across the Atlantic, he was informed by the captain that he was passing over the spot at which his daughters had died. Uh, and uh, he wrote this hymn, in response. So uh, a hymn with much water imagery and powerful oceanic imagery, yet in the really in the throes of despair, uh, well, not despair, but grief. Grief. Yeah. Despair, we would say, is a sin because it implies hopelessness. And this song expresses immense hope in the Lord. So curiously, his life uh, continued to be tragic even after writing this hymn because his son, uh, who was born later, uh, died of scarlet fever before his fifth birthday. And he had two more daughters uh, with his wife. Now, it doesn't even end there because Philip Bliss in 1876 wrote the tune to accompany this song. And Horatio Spafford actually had the opportunity to uh, premiere it with um, with Philip Bliss in public, singing it for the first time. And that same year in 1876, Philip Bliss was traveling by train through Northeastern Ohio when it crashed and Philip Bliss and his wife were burned to death in the wreckage of that 
uh, train. So, so although that would have obviously been unknown to the time at Bliss, this this hymn of great uh, suffering, but also great hope in the midst of suffering, uh, really continued to ripple throughout the lives of the people that wrote it. Another thing that's important to mention about Horatio Spafford and his wife Anna is that the grief that they suffered losing ultimately five of their seven children seems, now this is somewhat conjecture, to have driven them into uh, places that we would say are not good. So they founded in the 1880s a colony, as it was called, the American colony in Jerusalem. And this is this group has been called by some people a sect, some people a cult. There have been mm. reports in uh, published books about the American sect in Jerusalem that they fed the poor, they clothed the poor, they cared for people. They were rather open to people of all religious backgrounds in this uh, group. They believed that they would be the only ones prepared for the second coming of Christ. They were trying to hasten in the second coming of Christ. And yet in their group, they practiced some or allegedly practiced uh, things like separating children from their parents, uh, celibacy, even among married people, prohibiting uh, relations with a spouse that could produce children, and just lots of uh, darker things later in their in their lives. And it, it is even rumored that Horatio may have believed himself to be uh, an incarnate Messiah in his last wow. days. Whether or not that was a product of his malaria, of which he died a few days later, uh, kind of delusion that he experienced or delirium while in, you know, suffering from malaria is not clear. But what is clear, and this is in a, a book review about this cult, the American um, or I should say the sect, the American colony in Jerusalem, his wife apparently at the time of his death uh, went outside and danced, singing to the Lord, expressing her um, soul connection and reliance upon him. So uh, it seems like they just, they, they went from this despair initially to kind of trusting in the Lord, but then, you know, later in, later in Spafford's life, you, you have to be careful about the direction he went. Cause it seems like he went into a pretty dark, dark place. You know, that last part of the story never seems to make it into the sermon illustrations. Time. Well, <laughs> a conciseness is often valued <laughs> in sermons and uh, yeah, I mean, but I feel, I felt obligated to include that because we're often uh, you know, somewhat circumspect about the lives of the people that write the songs and not just, oh, yeah. you know, okay, this is a song about God's grace uh, and mercy and his steadfastness, even in suffering. Uh, and there's just a lot more to this story than that. And wow. uh, so that's just a quick background. Yeah. There's a lot that's been written about it, but it's a lot more than the simple uh, this was a man who trusted in the Lord for the rest of his life. That's the end of the story, right? Which it clearly wasn't. Well, we're going to obviously focus on the lyrics as we do when we review any song. And we chose Tyler to go ahead and look at the version that was sung by Grace Community Church, which we thought would be kind of a broadly popular version that people of various Christian denominations could probably identify Baptists, Presbyterians, Lutherans. Uh, people that have a few different, you know, people that are in the Reformed camp, people that aren't in the Reformed camp. I have to think that um, this version represents kind of a a broad, a broadly applicable and understood version of the song. I would agree with that. These are the 
most widely sung versions of the lyrics that are available. And this, I mean, the, the, this uh, th- this version alone on YouTube has got over almost 150,000 views, so it is quite popular. And I think it, it's roughly similar to many other contemporary versions of the song. So let's go ahead and get into the lyrics, and we will obviously make some note occasionally of maybe differences too, because this song does have some changes. I mean, this nothing as drastic as what Bethel did to it, but um, we can talk about those changes as we get to them. So the first verse. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Hmm. Okay, so it opens by contrasting two different states of being, of experience. So when peace attends my way and when sorrows roll like sea billows if you've ever been on the ocean in a in a watercraft there are often very powerful even deadly waves that buffet and that's a verb we'll see later a rock this boat violently uh and this is contrasted with having yeah the opposite so you know a stable ground underneath you so to speak peace attending your way when I mean, it's it's very hard to even analyze the lyrics without thinking about the story behind it, that Spafford was probably being rocked by similar waves that were rocking his children uh, and wife um, at the time of their death. And yet he had the courage and strength to say, whatever my lot. And to him, that meant a lot. That meant losing his business, losing his fortune, losing his titles. He ultimately did kind of uh, leave behind his his business enterprise and children even. Whatever my lot thou hast, that is to say, you have taught me to say. And I think he originally he wrote, you've taught me to know. Um, mm. It is well, it is well with my soul. That is to say, even though all things are not as I would like them to be, uh, one day they will be. And my spiritual state is uh, secure with you, with, mm-hmm. with the Lord. Indeed. The Lord is obviously implied there because he didn't say, God has taught me to say. Yeah. And all, and we get a mention of the Lord later. We get a mention of Christ, although Christ is not Christ is not directly addressed, but we, we get his name mentioned as well. So it becomes very clear quickly who he's talking about. I think it would be pedantic to say, oh, who is he talking about? Like, clearly he's talking about God. Mm-hmm. This isn't really a phrase that we use anymore to attend my way. There are multiple different definitions of the word intend, uh, but or of the word attend this verb, but it seems in this context to be referring to accompanying my way um, when, when my way is accompanied by peace. All right. So then the chorus, which is not too many words, it is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. 
he's describing, I think, what it feels like to be at peace in one's um, very being, in one's spirit. So despite turbulent circumstances, if you will, um, his mm-hmm. spirit is steadfast. And we see this in the Psalms too. God, my heart is steadfast. Um, the Lord is my rock and my redeemer. The Lord is a fortress. We have a lot of language in scripture where things are extremely turbulent outside, and yet um, God is faithful, steadfast, he's unchanging, and he gives us this kind of peace. I think this is a you know, the one of the reasons the song is so popular is because it is drawing on what is the common experience for all Christians, not at all times, of course, not at all times. But it is true that Christians can know that whatever is happening around them, even great tragedy and challenge and pain, suffering, etc., that Christ holds our soul, uh, and none that he holds uh, escape from his hand. And so we can say, we can join him by saying, it is well with my soul. And this is something that um, I think really makes this song of great power for the for Christians. We don't all have a story like his, but we can all join him in saying that whatever our individual story is, whether it includes this the kinds of things he experienced or not, it is well with our soul too. Yes, and we do have to be somewhat careful here because one might take these lines or these ideas and resort to detachment from the physical yeah. world or saying or even adopting a kind of new age spirituality where you say you know no matter what happens uh i don't feel it i don't yes well like almost a kind of stoicism yes we don't want stoicism we don't want escapism from the real world we don't want detachment uh he is acknowledging uh moments in his life of peace of even he had great prosperity and wealth but also um sorrows billowing up in his life mm-hmm. he's not saying that these are not sad things or that these are not things that hurt him or these are not things that really caused him extreme sorrow uh he is identifying uh great emotions and yet he's he's expressing ex- immense trust in the lord and also he's got an eye toward the second coming of christ even in this song bringing in a reign of peace forever All right, then we get to verse two. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. So now we have Christ. So any any of those pedantic people, uh, they have now been waylaid by this mention of Christ. Yeah, we actually have here... Uh, the introduction of two different figures. So initially Satan buffeting. So Satan now being identified with those waves, bringing death to his family, but in the, in the context of this song, bringing on various trials and tribulations 
rolling up sorrows like sea billows. And uh, Ephesians 6, 16 says, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. So this is a biblical idea that um, we have uh, flaming darts, uh, figuratively speaking, uh, which arise from the evil one, and we overcome them with faith, not just an empty faith or a disembodied faith, but actually faith in Jesus Christ. And so it's. I think it's good then that he goes immediately from though Satan should buffet me, though trial should come, let this blessed as blessed assurance uh, control. What what does that mean, by the way? That's a kind of an archaism, it seems like. The the control verb? Yeah. Let this blessed assurance control. Control what? Or is, you know, how it's the phraseology seems a little bit odd. Well, the, the assurance is that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. That's the content of the assurance. The assurance is blessed. That is, it brings uh, joy, happiness, but also it is a literal blessing to the helpless sinner. But let this blessed assurance control, this is control used in Oxford English Dictionary definition 3B, intransitive, so it doesn't have an object, to exercise control, to dominate or direct other uh, people okay so this really means like let let this let this knowledge direct me towards the truth yes or even dominate let it dominate my thinking that yes it is it is true i have experienced immense suffering and trial but let this thought exercise control over my mind let this assurance that christ has shed his blood for me control mm-hmm. in this context let it exercise dominance I like the consistency of the imagery here. So we've got a lot of uh, sea and waves type imagery. This was one of my, we don't have to keep bringing up the Bethel song, but that was one of my complaints. If I recall with the Bethel song that it's, it's metaphors were all over the place. Like it, it just mm-hmm. tried to bring, it basically try. The reason this song has such powerful metaphor is because it's consistent and also because of the story. Whereas the Bethel j- song, if I remember, just tried to make awesome sounding language and they just kind of threw it at the the chorus basically whereas this verse is real consistent with the last verse it's just kind of explaining in a bit more depth what is going on that actually there's an active force behind the various sorrows and and trials that like there is an enemy actively working against god's people yes and there's actually a lot of theology in this line uh, I won't comment on the Bethel one further other than to just no. yeah, state that it was m- mostly borrowing the chorus from this and not really a lot of the content. But the theology in the song is powerful. And it's important to remember Spafford was, uh, for, for most of his life, a Presbyterian. So he would have been reformed of theological persuasion, which would mean that he had a strong belief in the doctrine of God's sovereignty and his control over all things happening. And so he's probably here coming to uh, terms to some uh, extent with God's sovereignty over allowing this tragedy to befall him. And mm-hmm. the the other theology that's explicit in these lines is that he describes his estate, that is his status, his condition as being helpless. And uh, we might be nitpicky about language and say, well, if if God helped it, it wasn't helpless. But he's speaking here from a human perspective, being himself unable to help himself or any other human being able to help him. Christ 
nonetheless regarded his estate. That is, he uh, he took concern for the helplessness of this sinner and shed Christ's own blood for my soul. All right, let's get to verse 3. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Before you say anything, Tyler, I want to say this line, in my view, is the greatest, you know, this is the greatest stanza in the song. It's also the stanza that if I were to rate the song without the stanza, I think the song would get a solid three. Um, I think the first two verses are great, but I would have said, yes, but our sin problem is not really addressed directly. You have the last line of the second verse, and hath shed his own blood for my soul, so we know that there's the need for a penal substitution, but sin hasn't really been articulated well. It's just describing external things largely, whereas this verse gets into the most serious problem of all, which is our sin. And it, it, so it brings the problem and then it brings the solution all at once. And it's just such powerful language. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much to comment on here. I think the first thing I'll comment on is uh, the language itself. So we have these two half lines beginning with my sin. So the problem is, is repeated, Yeah. but then there are these interjections in between it, my sin, and then you can see almost the thought process. He's he's actually thinking ahead to the solution yes. <laughs> by sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. And he hasn't told us the thought yet, right? Yes. But 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 we know that he's but it's just like this, which is great. I think that's why this makes this song so singable, because after you sing it a few times, you you also know what's coming next. And so it allows it's like another layer in it where it's like, Oh yeah, I know what we're about to we're about to sing it. We're about to sing it. You know, <laughs> yes. and it's and it's just great final two lines. Yeah, so we have really the big bad guy, so to speak. You know, even more um, troublesome to this person than Satan's uh, buffeting is the my sin, not not something that uh, has befallen me, and he's not obviously um, erasing the the problem, the great suffering of his own life, but he's actually taking us to really the heart issue, the core issue. My sin, not in part. Now, this is interesting language too, yeah. but the whole of it. So. Um, it's not that he got me to the bridge and now I yes, have to walk exactly. across it. It's that he right. paid for all of it by that precious blood that we saw in the last verse. Yeah, And he even brings us again to the work of Christ in this image. And you have to know the story of uh, the gospel to, to know what he's talking about here. But obviously to Christians, this is pretty clear. My sin is nailed to the cross. And actually in this 1876 publication, he wrote is nailed to his cross and ah. I hear it no more. And I, I rather like that quite a bit yeah. uh, is nailed to. So 
it is nailed to the cross on which Christ was crucified. And this is also very biblical, right? We have uh, in the New Testament, he became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. So Christ was crucified for our sins, but also in a sense, he became our sin, which was crucified uh, mm-hmm. in an atoning sacrifice. So is nailed to the cross. And then on top of that, I no longer bear it incredibly, gloriously, that that it is, it's gone. Well, that's all. That was great thoughts, Tyler. So I won't add too much. I'll just say I really like the syntax as well. It's the the structure of some of this is is almost uh, Latin inspired, and in Latin sentences, you often get um, the the word that needs the most emphasis is is put last, which is often the verb. And so I think you see that influence in the second and third line. So my sin in English, we would say my sin is nailed to the cross. That'd be the way kind of we'd str- construct a sentence with, um, you know, kind of the, um, the, the subject and then the verb and then the verb and then the object. And it just kind of be a kind of, it's a logical way of constructing a sentence to us, but he saves the nailed to the cross part. So he, he, he adds this bit about not in part, but the whole, a little, um, sentence fragment just to kind of modify what he the verb that he is about to say so it ends up actually giving more weight to the verb when we finally get to it so my sin not in part but the whole is nailed boom you know and it just hits harder because of that so it's just yes. good songwriting is nailed to the cross and then the sentence continues with even this additional modifier after that. So you get a modification before the verb, and then you get this extra bit afterwards, and I bear it no more. And then I also like that you have a reflective statement at the end, which is exactly kind of the order it should go. In response to objective truth, that is where the 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 most authentic, genuine responsive praise comes from praise the lord praise the lord oh my soul and a lot of modern worship songs get this backwards if they even get it at all they contain very little objective truth and a lot of reflection but you don't get the reason in the song why it is that we're saying praise god or god is good or god is awesome or god is great or great are you lord or whatever it's like this song is gets the order right it's like here is an objective piece of truth. And in fact, it's, it's this critical piece of truth. We have been forgiven for our sins. They're nailed to the cross. We don't bear them anymore. And then you you just can't help but say, praise the Lord. Yes. Another thing that we would praise here, you mentioned the good songwriting. I, I would agree with that. But also the the tune writing by Philip. Oh, yeah, sure. Is beautiful. I mean, the beginning, I mean, he, he it almost seems like he nailed human speech in the, sorry for the verb there, yeah. but it almost seems like he um, modeled this because the poetry is so, flows so naturally. He actually grows the the melody in these lines where we have introductory, da, 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 and then, da, 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 da. but then the real big part is still growing to this massive burst. Da, mm. dum, 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 dum. Yes. Like, you can just feel it. Like, it, yeah. It, it, the melody rises and swells um, kind of yeah. like a wave to land those really powerful moments. Yeah. And you'll find that in this spot, in every verse, there's a really powerful line. So in the first verse, um, whatever my lot in the second verse that Christ has regarded in the third verse mm. is nailed to the cross. In the fourth verse, yes. the trump shall resound. 
Yeah, and you don't even realize, like subconsciously, you don't realize this is happening. Your mind knows that this is happening, and so which is why it works so well. And again, that's just great songwriting. And again, many modern worship songs get this backwards. They try to lead with the music. They try to lead with the emotionalism of the music or the echoey guitar or whatever, or the drums or whatever, and there's no substance. Whereas this song is really, really good at marrying that. And you don't need, I mean, the version that that we're using as a basis, basically, I, does it have organ or piano or something, right? It, it doesn't have a full band or something with synthesizers and everything else. It's just, but it's just good writing of melody. And I have to say, you know, if you're writing worship songs, um, write it so that it doesn't require the full band to have the music follow the emotional leading of the words. And if and if it works that way, yeah, it'll work really good then when you have a full band. But if you need all the drums and guitar effects and all that stuff for emotional content, then it probably means that your lyrics do not have much content. Yeah, and I think a century and a half of church music will demonstrate that very good musicians can take something like this and if you want virtuosity or some, if you want a solo, if you want something like that, fine, so be it. You can do that. They can work with this melodic line and produce something. But if your song, for example, requires an electric guitar to play a specific guitar solo, right. it's like, well, I, I think you're kind of missing the point here. Yeah, uh, That can be done without uh, yeah, writing extra parts for additional instruments. I mean, this song is powerful with, with four voices. It's like the equivalent of saying, like, instead of like making a great, dessert that has a mix of fantastic ingredients that combine together and hit really well. It's just like loading a dessert with sugar, right? It's like, a, it's like, it's just a shortcut, you know, it's that, that isn't really going to provide a kind of lasting quality to it. Mm. All right. So then we get to the final stanza and which also is wonderful. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Mm. I have to say, just since we've been talking about the music, one of my favorite versions of this song for the first three verses has uh, this drum part that's really emphasizing the offbeat. So it's like... But then on this fourth verse, this really good musicians know the, the the power of percussion instruments. The drum part changes. Very little else about the song changes, but the drum part changes. And it feels so powerful, like it's building. So... And this song has really been culminating to this uh, verse, which to 
kind of reminds me of 1 Corinthians 13, 12. Uh, for now, it is King James Version. We see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Uh, now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. So um, when this faith that I have will, or in, in this shall be sight, when when all of these promises that we have, that blessed assurance that we had before, that we know to be true, uh, when we finally see it and behold it with our own eyes, when the clouds are rolled back as a scroll, that is to say, when when Christ comes descending on the clouds, um, the trump the uh, shall resound, uh, heralding his coming, and the Lord himself shall descend. Uh, even so, it is well with my soul. Extremely potent uh, lyrics pointing to not just uh, assurance in in an earthly context or even spiritual assurance for this time in between Christ's first coming and his second coming, but also assurance at the second coming of Christ, that this, this Lord who paid for our sins uh, is now coming to institute his reign of peace. Uh, this last line also kind of fits a structure which had been popular at this point for, I don't know, maybe about a hundred years, maybe slightly less of having the final stanza be about the kind of the second coming and about the the church, the new heavens and the new earth and the, the kind of culmination of all things. This is a, a familiar, would be a familiar way of structuring a song to the people that sung this at the time. And it wasn't too long after this song was written that that started to, that pattern started to kind of fade out uh, mm. and be replaced by, by other, you know, kind of more revivalist songs, which ended up, which really focused on an individual person's salvation story and actually had to say a lot less about what would happen um, in kind of a, well, in the way that this song does. And so I think um, that's probably just worth mentioning. Another thing I'll mention is that this idea of trumpets sounding at the last day is thoroughly biblical. So, for example, 1 Corinthians 15, 52, Paul mentions in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. This also has precedence in the Old Testament. So Isaiah 27, 13 says, and it shall come to pass in that day that the great trumpet shall be blown and they shall come, which were ready to perish in the land of Assyria and the outcasts in the land of Egypt and shall worship the Lord at the holy mount at Jerusalem. Not to mention the seven trumpets in the book of Revelation. All right. Well, Tyler, I think that gets us to some concluding thoughts. Now you brought the song, so I presume you see this song as being an excellent song. You would probably uh, endorse it or or recommend it, as it were, to churches, it sounds like. Yes. So even absent the story behind the song, if I just take the song by its own words, it is powerful. It is uh, theologically rich, theologically sound. It expresses things in new ways, biblical things in new ways, and would be highly, I would highly recommend it to people to sing. If you're not familiar with this song somehow, uh, I suggest you acquaint yourself with it. And uh, this is much better than a lot of things that do get sung in churches. What about you, Colin? What would you say? 
Yeah, uh, there is basically nothing to complain about in the song. So that's, I mean, <laughs> that in and of itself is a good thing. That doesn't always make an excellent song. We've given a lot of threes out to songs that just don't have much that's objectionable, but then don't have much else at all. And this song not only has nothing to complain about, it's just powerful. It It is powerful because it references objective truth. It does so in a pithy way, in a and yet a very comprehensive way in terms of including just the mo- the core message of the gospel uh, and a and a message that is true that all Christians can sing which I love too it's it's well written musically the way the music and the lyrics work together is fantastic that's not normally a criterion we use but I'll just mention it in praise of the song it's fantastic really in every way and I think it is a great song to sing excellent well, I'll go ahead and just give it a five out of five trumpet parts <laughs> because one time I had the pleasure of playing this song with a professional trumpet player yeah. named Annie. If you're out there, Annie, you're awesome. And I remember at this, in the final verse of this song, uh, I had, <laughs> I, I didn't really know what to, you know, to give, uh, Annie as advice, but I said, I want you to play something uh, kind of like a herald announcing a monarch coming in. And she just played, I I wish I had a recording of it. She just played the most majestic thing in that third line. And she led into it too. So it was, it was like the clouds be rolled back as a scroll. And then she went, and it just, it was with all of the people singing and all the music, it wasn't overpowering the voices. It was just adding to it. It was just the the trumpet part was just beautiful and I will never forget it. Did she play that part with a mute or anything? Because I presume, you know, I remember that church was a little bit small, so I could see the trumpet blowing out all the other instruments. She must have had some way of doing that. I think she had a mute on for most of the song, but then removed it for the last oh, verse. Okay. <laughs> so for the most of the song, she wasn't, you know, drowning us out in trumpet sounds. But then for the last verse, what everybody shout I mean, what everyone knows this song pretty much. Uh, if you've been in a church for more than a year, you know, you're probably familiar with this song. I hope so. so. She, she's playing over a band basically, and an entire congregation who knows this song pretty much by heart and has the lyrics in front of them and they're all shouting it too. So it just, it was very powerful. All right. I get, I give this, I give this song five out of five sermon stories because in addition to many Christians being familiar with the song. They are familiar in some way with the kind of mythical history slash history history, depending on what stories are told of the song as well. I think every single church I have ever been in, I I guarantee that there have been several things in common in every church I have been a part of. One, uh, illustrations that reference movies. Two, illustrations that reference the Chronicles of Narnia. Three, illustrations that reference the sport of football. And that is even true in my church in England at one point. There were a ser- was a sermon illustration or two that referenced the sport of American football. And then the final element, which has been common in every single church I've been a part of, is some sermon story that is related to this song and the life of its author. And it's obviously, it's hard not to. It's a very powerful story. Yeah, sure. But like I said before, the song the song also stands alone just fine. It's not one of the songs where you have to have the story to understand it or something like that, but knowing the story enriches your understanding of it. 
And I think this is also a good example of why we're kind of cautious with maybe dismissing in all of the work of a particular artist because of something they later go on to do. I can understand why you might be worried if someone went on to become a heretic or uh, an apostate or something. You might not want to be singing their music in your church. But then this is an example where a guy functionally founded a cultic organization uh, and allegedly you know, separated children from parents and things like that. Uh, but we still sing the song in churches and it's, and it's a very good song on its own. Yep. Well, with those comments, listener, we will leave you for yet another week, hopefully of material that was provocative and helped you think and that you could also feel like sharing with people, you know, so we do encourage you to pass this podcast on to other Christians, even to non-Christians. They'll get the gospel in many cases Uh, You could also pass it on to your pastors, your worship leaders, musicians in the church. We very much hope that this podcast is a service to the great church, to the greater church. And uh, yeah, feel free to write us at feedback at the worship review. You can find us on Twitter as well and write to us there. And you can listen to us on anchor.fm slash the worship review. And you can also find us on all other uh, major podcast platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, etc. Anyway, we'll leave you with that. We thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Take care. Bye. You've been listening to The Worship Review. Please subscribe to the podcast, leave a comment, or email us at feedback at theworshipreview.com. We accept donations at anchor.fm slash theworshipreview and patreon.com slash theworshipreview. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.